Hi, I'm Brett Terpstra, and this is Systematic on ESN. First off, I'd like to apologize for the long delays since the last episode. I'm working on getting things back on track, so thanks to everyone for sticking with me. My guest this week is Jared Rodriguez. He teaches at Northwestern, DePaul, and the University of Illinois, Chicago, and is a doctoral candidate in African American Studies at Northwestern University. How's it going, Jared? Oh, it's uh, going pretty well, as well as it can be recording a podcast uh, hiding from your children in your bedroom closet. <laughs> I, think, I think there are a lot of podcasts made in bedroom closets. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, uh, you know, the uh, dirty little secret of the podcast industry. <laughs> Bed- bedroom closets padded with pillows. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know how you claim that on uh, on your uh, <laughs> as a as a write off. I wonder if I can. Uh, <laughs> claim this is a workspace if you take the entire uh square footage of your home and then subtract or then uh factor the like rent and utilities and for the square footage of the closet you can totally deduct that so hopefully yeah. it's a big I'm, closet yeah I'm, I'm i'm into it i uh I'm, I'm gonna see if i can toss on snacks uh to keep my uh and sort of uh you know, my uh, HBO Go uh, fees to keep my kids sedated. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah. So you're currently, you're a doctoral candidate and a professor, and we, we're going to get into all of the stuff that uh, that you focus on there. I kind of wanted to start at the beginning, though, because you have a, a pretty amazing story for someone who is currently where you are right now. Um, so... You uh, you describe yourself as a black New Yorican. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, <laughs> I guess uh, that's uh, an interesting, uh, you know, a small anecdote that I can give you is I, I introduce myself in that way um, when I teach my uh, uh, courses or most of them anyway, if they if they have anything to do with uh, with race or blackness, which. Most of them uh, do because that's what I study and that's what I uh, uh, what I teach, what I write about. Um, I get a, a, an interesting response, particularly in the Midwest. It's very interesting because growing up in New York City, um, I don't know how much you know about the the, the history of New York City, but the, or, and or the, its demographics now. But there's a, a, a huge um, population of Caribbean folk. There were you know, waves of migration over the, 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 really the whole of the 20th century. And unfortunately now due to, to Hurricane Marie, you're seeing another migration of Puerto Ricans into, uh, into the States, uh, you know, American citizens as, uh, uh unfortunately some Americans need to be, uh, reminded, uh, though one of the interesting caveats there is that, uh, if you are a Puerto Rican, uh, and you do live on the island, you actually can't vote in presidential elections. Right. A bit of a digression, but uh, an interesting uh, fact to note about uh, about the United States and the way that, um, you know, there's a sort of an unequal distribution of uh, possibility in regards to participating in sort of this, uh, you know, democratic experiment, as they say. But there's a, uh, you know, waves over the 20th century of, of migration in from from the Caribbean, you know, in uh, for those that don't know in your audience. Right. Uh, um, in 1898, the, the U.S. annexes Puerto Rico from uh, from Spain, uh, whose colony it was and institutes a 
military government, you know, an occupation, ostensibly, what we would call it today, anyway. Um, and then around 1917, uh, around the time of the Russian Revolution and sort of World War One, um, the U.S. grants Puerto Rican citizens, uh, uh, Puerto Ricans, uh, American citizenship, and and shortly after, a day or so, uh, institutes the draft. So, uh, uh, um, you know, one can uh, cynically <laughs> think about the the provenance, uh, the you know, the roots of. Puerto Rican, you know, sort of incorporation into, uh, uh, you know, the American citizenry um, as directly related to the needs of, you know, um, American political interests, U.S. political interests, you know, in, in uh, uh, you know, and sort of the geopolitical desires. And so that uh, wave of migration that happened after that, and then again, uh, due to uh, the need to fill, you know, the uh, uh, during World War II, the need to fill uh, sort of manufacturing labor, you know, the sort of increased uh, necessity for cheap labor while, you know, many Americans were abroad fighting World War II uh, led to another uh, migration. But, uh, you know, you've had a sizable contingent of Puerto Ricans in New York and Haitians, uh, now Dominicans and uh, um yeah, in New York, the 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 idea that one could be Puerto Rican and black, right, or that uh, that black people spoke uh, uh, many languages, <laughs> was not really uh, something that I questioned until moving, you know, or at the very least, something that's a part of the the you know the cultural consciousness of the city. And moving to Chicago in the Midwest, where in Chicago is one of those cities where there is a, a, a pretty large proportion of uh, of Puerto Ricans, but the absence, I think, of um, Afro-Latinos or Afro-Caribbean folk, Black Caribbean folk, Black Latin Americans uh, uh, means that the, you know, the way that people understand race is, is very different here. Uh, um, and so, hence the uh, introduction to myself, you know, my classes as a, as a Black Puerto Rican, as a means of, um, you know, as, as a pedagogical or teaching tool. But it's also, you know, my experience, my my uh, identity, so to speak, my way of understanding myself and, and my place in the world. Yeah. So that was a very long digression, but I hope that uh, <laughs> it was in some way answering your question. <laughs> sure. Um, so what age were you when you moved to the U.S.? Uh, oh, I actually, I, I oddly, I, I was uh, I don't know if I was uh, uh, unclear about this. I was actually born in New York City. Oh, oh. Yeah, my parents, my father was born in Puerto Rico, um, came to the States as a teen in his late teens. Um, I, my mother was born here um, and grandparents all born in, uh, with the exception of one, all born in Puerto Rico. So, but the interesting thing is, is that I, I didn't speak English until I was, you know, until I, until I went to, to, to school. Um, so for all intents and purposes, I grew up, uh, in New York city, uh, <laughs> in a, uh, uh, you know, uh, in a Spanish speaking household, you know, with, uh, Cuban neighbors, you know, Haitian neighbors. Uh, I grew up in public housing in New York city. There's, a um, another sort of like, of course you can't really escape, uh, the military in a, in a, uh, or at the very least in, you know, me thinking about my biography, um, where I grew up was uh, public housing, uh, you know, sometimes referred to as the projects. Uh, um, but in New York City, there were there's uh, some of the largest public housing projects in the country uh, built to house returning World War II GIs. 
Um, and, uh, and then in the 60s and 70s, you know, the sort of the term white flight, right, sort of emerges from, from what happened when, uh, in this case, in New York, the, the, uh, the city and the state actually subsidized those families uh, to move into the suburbs or planned communities on Long Island. And that's when you have a, uh, an influx of, uh, that's when the public housing in the United States uh, moves from being something that uh, today we wouldn't really uh, recognize given its association with, with, uh, you know, with non-white folks, um, you know, it moves from being really a project to uh, uh, temporarily house uh, returning World War II GIs to, uh, something very different, and that's uh, that. You know, that's around the time when my family um, makes the trek from Brooklyn to Queens to Long Island City Astoria to uh, Ravenswood Housing Projects, which is right uh, adjacent to Queensbridge. Which I don't know if you're you're familiar with the rapper Nas. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Nas is from Queensbridge. I grew up, uh, you know, in Queensbridge and Ravenswood and Astoria projects. Yeah, that's uh, you know, that's the story of my uh, my growing up, and you know, the sort of. New Eurekan is, uh, you know, sort of uh, neologism that emerges from uh, really sort of a, a Puerto Rican art scene in the 70s. And uh, as a means of trying to talk about the difference or not the difference, but but give a name to this new culture that springs up in New York, you know, from Puerto Rican communities that come and, and you know, and it's not just. Puerto Ricans, right? Sort of, uh, uh, you know, Cubans, Haitians, a bunch of uh, different Caribbean folk. But it would be one of the places where, uh, uh, for instance, salsa music, right, emerges in, in a very sort of uh, serious way as, a, you know, as a form of New Rican culture, right? And that sort of diasporan sort of back and forth folks, musicians coming back and forth. And uh, yeah, and so that's, that's the, in a way, the provenance of sort of me describing myself in that way but it's also you know a, a means of uh kind of uh nudging people or disturbing their their uh, uh, uh you know their preconceived notions about the self-evident distinctions between sort of say a latino and a black person so i'm assuming you didn't attend like a private um <laughs> like preschool and your schooling Whoa, probably start. started yeah 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 head start i would so head start is a uh yeah we did head start and uh no and i uh uh i you know sort of as a part of my background i uh, uh i didn't uh you know not a traditional background for a uh a, a learned doctor or soon to be learned doctor i'll be defending my dissertation in a couple months uh um not your traditional background, right? Public housing, right? Uh, um, uh, uh, didn't learn English until very, uh, very late for your quote unquote average American. Um, and I, uh, yeah, I left school um, uh, after the eighth grade and started working, right? And sort of like not a not a common, you know, common sort of entry into the workforce for your average sort of doctoral candidate or, or, or uh, um but due to, you know, familial uh, obligations, necessities, uh, uh, yeah, I started working early. And uh, was, that, and I, was that more common for your demographic, though? Yeah, I mean, I think that that it, just to give you a bit of background, I guess, sort of like king of background, right? Uh, <laughs> king of context, right? Sort of what context is king, as they say. Uh, um, uh, this is the 80s, right? And so, you know, Reaganomics, trickle-down economics, sort of a shredding of the social safety net, what people understand uh, 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 today as sort of neoliberalism, right? What Thatcher sort of referred to as, a, a, you know, there is no alternative, right? That to which there is no alternative. 
you had a shredding of the social safety net, right? You had a, uh, uh, you know, the bogeyman and bogeywoman, right, of things like the welfare queen, the super predator, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, this is when our uh, that which the quote unquote majority of the American people sort of elected to the presidency, right? When that uh, that person, right, um, Trumpito, as a uh, uh, Jesus and Mero, sort of two of my favorite uh, comedians uh, referred to him as, right, um, took out full page ads in uh, um, the New York papers, calling for the execution of five black teenagers who were accused of raping a woman in Central Park. I don't know if you're aware uh, of the case of the Central Park Five. Yes. Um, And he still accuses them, even after they're acquitted. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so, you know, this is the the context. This is the New York City in which I am uh, uh, growing up. You know, the New York City of the super predator, the New York City of the welfare queen, right? The quote-unquote welfare welfare queen, the... the, um, uh, you know, it's a, a you know, crack cocaine was very um, a very destructive force uh, when coupled with the shredding of the social safety net and the militarization of, uh, you know, of of the police, yeah. uh, which occurs in this moment. And so, you know, things were the, you know, for in trying to think about, well, what are the conditions under which sort of, you know, a 12, 13 year old leaves school and gets a job, you know, to help support his family. Those are the conditions, right? Those are the conditions. It has to do, you know, with sort of economic issues, with political issues, with, uh, um, you know, not necessarily, you know, the quote unquote cultures of poverty, Right. That uh, uh, the arguments that are trotted out today um, to try to to explain why, uh, you know, the quote unquote equality of opportunity in the United States does not correlate to, you know, an equality of quote unquote achievement. Right. Yeah. You know, when you offer some of the context of why, you know, I chose to get a job, you know, quote unquote chose. Right. Uh, (laughs) It offers a very different picture uh, than you know, being a member of a community that does not value education, right? Yeah. So you did eventually get a GED, I assume. Yeah, eventually I got a GED, thank, thankfully. Uh, <laughs> a general equivalency diploma. Um, I, uh, I, it's an interesting, you know, oftentimes uh, uh, I feel like, you know, in some ways have been very lucky in life, so other ways very unlucky, but I uh, accompanied a friend to this nonprofit in New York for, uh, you know, I think uh, they were going there for some kind of service, but it's a nonprofit called The Door, and it uh, is in in Chinatown in New York, and they, uh, they provide services or provided services at that point mainly for kids who, you know, who lived on the street, right, who didn't have housing or who were you know, whose needs were not being met, right, either because of difficult family circumstances and or because they were in and out of the system. And I accompanied a friend there. I can't remember. You know, they did medical services. They did counseling. They did sort of job training. And I accompanied a friend there. On, I don't even remember why they were going there. Um, but I saw that they had a GED program. And I went and I had a conversation with someone. And, you know, the next day I I, uh, I went back there with my brother. I have a twin brother, by the way. His name's uh, Hustino. Uh, and he's also sort of a, a, a intellectual researcher, scholar. Wow. 
yeah, he actually teaches in New York at the uh, uh, at um, in the City University of New York system uh, at uh, John Jay, uh, which is one of the schools there. Um, and he teaches uh, uh, he's teaching, I think, a, a, a Latin American and Caribbean history course right now, actually three sections of it. But in any event, <laughs> um, uh, uh, oh, I just uh, fell off of my truck. <laughs> <laughs> GED kind of was yeah, where it started. So, yeah, exactly, right? Sort of uh uh absent-minded professor uh indeed. Um so yeah, so I uh, uh I went back the next day with my brother and took a placement test to see how much remediation uh I would need and you know, lo and behold, uh none. So <laughs> a couple days later, you know, I took the ferry with my brother out to Staten Island, uh which uh, uh for most New Yorkers uh uh, non-Staten Islanders, it's a it's a harrowing experience uh, <laughs> for a number of different reasons. Uh, interestingly enough, sort of uh, uh, just to give you a sense of the demographics of Staten Island, even though they're you know it's where Wu Tang is from, right? Sure. The it it is the only place in the greater I think tri-state area that uh, went went red uh, uh, in the presidential elections, uh, the last couple of presidential elections. L- literally, an island. Yeah, literally <laughs> an island. It's also some, uh, sometimes referred to as Copland. Uh, uh, Why? Uh, what? Yeah, well, it's because an over uh, an overwhelmingly disproportionate number of New York City cops live huh. uh, uh, live in Staten Island. That kind of makes sense. Yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, went out there, got my GED, and uh, uh, you know, and uh, or took the test and and got it, and uh, you know, and then was. Uh, on my way into the world, and uh, yeah, that's uh, that was the story of uh, of that. Eventually, you know, started. You know, I'd had an interest in art. You know, because of it's uh, growing up in New York City is a very, very, very strange thing because of the you know what what uh you know I don't know how much uh, uh, Russian Revolution. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, a background you have, but there's a, you know this guy Leon Trotsky, right? The guy who uh, yeah, got, yeah. The, uh, got the ice pick in Mexico City, right? Uh, <laughs> uh, he had this idea about combined and uneven development that you know way to explain how you could have some of the most developed areas adjacent to some of the most undeveloped areas, right? How development isn't really linear, and sometimes the underdevelopment of, of one area is the basis, right, sort of the extraction or exploitation of that area is the basis upon which the, you know, sort of the adjacent area can be, quote unquote, overdeveloped, right, or has its, you know, maintains its level of development, right? You can think about this. It doesn't happen so much in the United States, but in Latin America and the Caribbean and Africa and sort of Asia, like a number of different places, right? You have, you know, in in Brazil, for instance, right, you have, uh, uh, you know, what are referred to as slums, um, uh, right next to sort of some of the wealthiest areas, right? You'll have a building that's occupied by people, you know, uh, who are homeless right next door to, uh, you know, a luxury building, right? You'll have a, what's re- uh, called there a favela, right? Which is pejoratively referred to as a slum uh, and which the people who live there call a, a comunidade, right? Or a community, right? Right next to sort of an incredibly wealthy area, right? Um, that in New York City, right, actually happens more so than the rest of the United States, right? You can have a housing project, right, in Harlem, right, sort of like adjacent to, you know, sort of the Upper East Side, right? Yeah. And the distinction of the neighborhood, right, in a sort of in a cultural or social sense has to do with, right, 
how much money the people living in the building make, right? <laughs> uh, um, but one of the the uh, outgrowths of that is that I, you know, were I growing up at pretty much anywhere else in the United States, I I wouldn't have gone to the Metropolitan Museum of Art on a regular basis, right? Uh, um, but because I lived in New York City and it, it was the cost of uh, uh, a token, a subway token, and or sort of running the risk of getting arrested by hopping the turnstile, uh, <laughs> um. You know, I went regularly, you know, sort of uh, either, uh, you know, when I was younger on class trips or on my own to the Met, right, to the Museum of Natural History, right? And there's a kind of, you know, what some people refer to it as cultural capital. But, you know, when you think about, uh, um, you know, it's not osmosis, right? When when a, a, a museum, you know, sort of when the people designing the exhibits design them, Right. They're teachers. Right. They're designing them uh, with pedagogy in mind. How do I effectively communicate this information? How do I, you know, uh, also weave in, uh, you know, ways to think about how to learn. Right. And relationships to build between exhibits. Right. So when you go to a museum like the Museum of Natural History. Right. It act- it's you're not just gaining information. Right. The, the structure of the exhibits. Right. The structure of the museum is actually teaching you how to, you know, <laughs> methods for how to think, right? How to, how to put things together. So, you know, looking back, I realized, you know, that, that it was a tremendous sort of educational experience going to the Museum of Natural History on a, on a regular basis, going to the Met, listening to the docents, right? For free, right? Um, which makes the, the Met's decision to, to change their, uh, their pay what you wish, admissions fee uh, all the more <laughs> uh difficult but uh um uh, but yeah i i loved art and as a result uh uh you know that's what drew me to um to computers and computing our uh, uh my extent of experiences with uh computers in school were you know uh surreptitiously playing uh uh, uh horse racing games on old tandies right <laughs> Uh, and sort of betting, uh, <laughs> I think it was the, the seventh grade, right? Sort of where you'd see the name, right? The name of a quote unquote horse blip across the screen, <laughs> uh, you know, and sort of that, uh, that green light was fascinating, but, you know, I didn't have a ton of experience with computers until really, uh, uh I got my first computer when I turned, uh, 18 or so. Uh, um, and it was the most amazing thing I'd ever, uh, what year was that? Jesus, uh, 99, I think. Okay. 99. So into the era of the uh, 486 Intel processors. What kind of yeah. computer was it? Yeah, it was it was a desktop, a Sony Vio. Okay. Yeah. And I got it from a local, I got it sort of like, I think it was damaged or something. Like I managed to save up and I got it from a, a local like uh, um, uh, chain called PC Richards, and uh, uh, it was the most amazing. You know, it had a, a it was when uh, uh, Sony was still doing purple, and uh, you know, I had a beautiful CRT monitor, a, a beautiful <laughs> 15 inch CRT monitor. Which, uh, um, and it was it was interesting, uh, in that. So, I don't know if you remember when Sony transitioned to make the flat CRTs. I don't remember when it was. I, yeah. I remember this. But you remember, though. right? You yeah. remember sort of like they were making the flat cathodes. And so I uh, I thought I was the coolest person in the world because I had a flat CRT. <laughs> it's like I, I said, I don't know anybody with a flat CRT. It was uh, <laughs> it was glorious. The 15 inches of joy. 
So um, how did the computer fit into this love of art then? Well, I the reason the, – the main reason behind it is because I'd learned – I don't even know where. Maybe I'd seen it on somebody else's computer. I'd seen this program called Photoshop. Yeah, that makes sense. Someone was doing wild things with it. Wild, wild things with it. And I uh, – um, I was just, I, I have to, you know, I have to figure out a way to be able to learn how to do this, right. Or, or be able to do this. And, and, uh, um, so I, uh, you know, I got my, my, uh, scrapped together some cash and, uh, started, you know, sort of messing around and eventually, you know, I, uh, uh, got terrible enough or at the very least lost, you know, uh, whatever shame I should have had at sort of the terrible <laughs> creations I was putting together, uh, you know, sort of g- drop shadow. Yep. Is Emboss, really, Yeah. Is yeah. Uh, they, they, right. Uh, you know, sort of, uh, oh gosh, they say that sort of wit is the last refuge of fools, right. <laughs> sort of like those, uh, you know, those t- type, you know, typeface edits, right. Drive shadow, but, but those, that's the, the, that's the first refuge of fools. Uh, <laughs> And so I just started designing, you know, sort of I'd find people, I'd sort of, you know, hustle and design flyers, business cards, uh, all kinds of things uh, for folks right around the neighborhood. Or, uh, you know, I knew some party promoters and, and you know, I designed flyers for them and, uh, you know, just make a little uh, cash. And eventually I uh, uh, I got, you know, I wanted to get my own images, to use right i became more you know uh discerning i don't even know if i actually was discerning and so i ended up getting a camera and so from this camera which i started you know i just obsessively you know shot photographs and eventually got my hands on a, a digital camera and you know my knowledge of uh 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 you know, my uh, no, small knowledge of Photoshop and, and, you know, some scanned images. And I started just joshing around. And eventually, you know, I just fell in love with it. I fell in love with photography. I fell in love with, you know, the the uh, some people, you know, uh, uh, those of us who've been in a dark room, right, can can understand the the, you know, the way in which digital photography can be less tactile. Right. When you're yeah. in the dark room, you got your hands in the developer, or the fixative. Right. There's a, a, a sensuousness to that. Right. Where you 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 know, you can feel the affinity between the paint on a canvas. Right. And yeah. what you're doing as a photographer. Right. There's there's, you know, for lack of a better word, not, not necessarily or phrase rather. Not, it's not necessarily getting your hands dirty, but there's like, you know, you feel uh, the you know, I forget what the word is, but but, you know, there's a a. a, a a sensuousness right to it right there's a the feeling in in you know in your hands right yeah Um, a tactile um, quality yeah and for some reason like you know but this i much later spent time in the darkroom but at this moment right i really do feel you know when i was taking my own photographs and even if though i was getting them scanned in at walgreens right (laughs) getting 35 millimeter processed at walgreens and and you know you know and the the crappy scans being able to use them you know, that really what did feel like a big, you know, turning point for me sort of in, in regards to what I felt like I could do in the opening up of, uh, you know, not having to scour the Internet for images. Right. But being able to begin to to, to work my own. And eventually I, uh, you know, I came up with a bunch of images and I actually applied to uh, 
Parsons School of Design to their photography program, and lo and behold, I got in. Uh, I, I think yeah. I think you and I both come from the first era that uh, we we understood. Like we we did, we knew our way around a darkroom, but when we looked at Photoshop, we saw we saw an improvement. We saw that it actually freed you up and gave you more power and we didn't shun it the way people that were alive at the same time, but a little bit older. Yeah. I mean, I think that part of it is, you know, and, and it's not, I think that there, you know, clearly if you look at, you know, there are, there are many, many, many things that you will never ever be able to do. Right. In, in Photoshop or with sort of, uh, uh, you know, digital printing, just never going to be able to do it. Right. You're never going to be able to replicate. Right. The the, you know, tonal depth of using sort of matte uh, matte photographic paper. At that right? point, like, that seemed true, but that does not seem to be true anymore. Well, I, I you know, maybe maybe <laughs> maybe I'm still holding on. Uh, and I've been out of the game for a little while, but, uh, you know, the, for me, right. What I feel like is you, there's sweat equity, right. That a lot of people have put into developing a set of skills. Right. And it's not, I mean, you can see this in a number of the, you know, sort of like conservatism politically, right. People feel like they put in a bunch of sweat equity. They don't want to change their minds. They built up a way of understanding the world, right? That's, why, why should I change my mind? Why should I, you know, sort of uh, 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 agree with same-sex marriage, right? Or sort of any other uh, quote-unquote newfangled wacky idea, right? There's a, um, you know, there's a an inherently conservatizing, you know, uh, valence, right, of building up expertise about something. Sure. Right? Um, because you, because in a sense, right, you build up expertise by being systematic in general, right? Ha ha ha, pun. Right? Uh-huh. Um, but you also uh, uh, are, are systematic, so you can repeat, right? Right. You can repeat the effects in the darkroom. That's how you build up, right? The the you know you put in, you invest in building out this infrastructure, right? Uh, you know, it's like a, a, if a if a painter had to you know uh, mix all of their own paints every single time. Right. You know, with for photographers. Right. There's a there. It it takes a lot of time. It's really hard. Right. Working in the darkroom is really, really hard. Um, And uh, oftentimes there's a lag between, you know, the what you're doing in the darkroom and and whether or not you find out uh, if it worked or not. Right. right? And, uh, um, you know, I think that that sometimes is you know, builds in uh, a bit of a conservatizing sort of, uh, you know, which is not different than sort of a lot of other things in life. But but for me, I uh, I felt like my familiarity with the computer, with, uh, you know, with Photoshop opened up, you know, possibilities for me that I didn't know who to ask to learn <laughs> <laughs> how to do in the dark room, right? Yeah, well, that makes I, sense. You know, so I, uh, yeah, I think that there's a, you know, you get in through certain paths and, and you know, that blocks off others to you. But, uh, you know, ultimately at the end of the day, it's about attempting to to bring together all of the resources that you're going to need to express that which you're trying to express. I skipped over a little bit. I, uh, uh, you know, after I got my camera, I, uh, 
um, you know, went into a deep dive into photography and, and started, you know, uh, sweeping up at photo studios, right, to see what I could learn or what I could pick up. And I started uh, assisting for uh, ultimately, right, for commercial photographers, which is around the, the, the you know, uh, a year or two before I applied to Parsons. Uh, I only ended up going to Parsons for a year because uh, one of my professors said, uh, uh, what are you doing here? <laughs> <laughs> you should be working because I'd picked up you know, a, a tremendous, uh, assisting, uh, tremendous amount of knowledge. And I basically got tapped after my first semester there to be a TA for their advanced lighting seminar. And so my, a uh, couple of my professors were like, get out of here. And so that's when <laughs> I, uh, I left, um, and, uh, uh, ended up, uh, yeah, ended up trying to get a new gig and uh started working in the the commercial photo industry uh as a digital tech and did that for a while at some of the bigger uh commercial photo uh rental operations right where i would basically go out on set and be the you know the digital tech uh (laughs) monkey or whatever uh basically put the put you know set set up phase one set up all the digital backs and put it in the photographer's hands and then have them yell at me because it doesn't do what they want it to do. <laughs> what, what, what About what year would you have been doing this? Oh, gosh. Two... Is this 2009? Yeah, that's funny. I, I My first job out of art school was um, working uh, as an art director at a fashion company and we would do photo shoots and we had a highly skilled photographer, but there would always be a, a digital tech on the scene. So I'm familiar, I'm familiar with the job responsibilities of the digital tech. Yeah. Yeah, Basically they're, uh, you know, sort of, uh, uh, in, (laughs) in the history of Christianity, you have, uh, uh, this thing called a sin eater, right? Someone that you pay to sort of, uh, uh, offload your sins onto. Yeah. Um, that's very much what I felt like on set on a regular basis. (laughs) Like I was, uh, one of those stress balls, uh, that just got squeezed by the photographer. Yeah. Uh, so needless to say, I did not stick around doing that for, for, for very long. I actually walked in to the very first Apple store, uh, uh, not long after that. And, uh, in Soho and, uh, and talk my way, uh, uh, into a job. Yeah. Um, and uh, that was a was an experience. So at the uh, at the Apple Store, what was your kind of focus? So I, it's really strange because at the time, right, there was only there were only one or two stores, and and Apple hired. I mean, I don't. I, I to be perfectly honest, I don't know how much of this I'm allowed or not allowed or whatever signed an NDA about, but uh, ultimately, I don't think it really matters. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, uh, um, I, my opinion is that they didn't really know what they were getting into. And I don't mean that in, in that they were, um, uh, what, what's a sort of an appropriate word to use here? Incompetent, right? These are some of the smartest people I'd ever met. And they, part of the, you know, what reflected that is they found, you know, some of the most capable retail managers that they could uh, to work to manage the store. But the problem is, is that the Apple store at that time, you know, maybe, you know, people argue about it changing 
and I don't know, you know, if my experience necessarily uh, would counter that about the change in sort of the experience and the culture of sort of the Apple store. Uh, but when I worked there, it was a really interesting um, clash of cultures. Um, and it wasn't like top down, but it was, you know, a bunch of the people they hired were folks like myself who had an abiding love <laughs> uh, uh, for technology and the way that it could really change and improve people's lives, right? And sort of an infectious desire to share that, you know, we were problem solvers, we were, you know, in a certain sense, right? Uh, in, in a real sense, evangelists, right? Uh, um, in, in, you know, in the positive connotation of that, that word. And you had a bunch of retail folks who were very bottom line oriented and very uh, move units oriented. And so that was a really interesting experience just to watch that, you know, as sort of uh, an armchair anthropologist, right, to watch that play out and watch those cultures clash and watch, you know, uh, basically upper management try to sift through Right. Which what they wanted to take from where to create something new. And, uh, you know, sometimes it was really terrible and sometimes it was great. Um, I started out uh, in it was really interesting at the time they had a position called uh, uh, I guess sort of like a, a software associate. And it was my job, you know, basically when people came in because they didn't know what people were going to come in and want. Sure. Right. People didn't have the experience of walking into an Apple store and, uh, you know, at all. Right. So you had people who wanted to, you know, learn about the iPod. You had people who wanted to, to outfit their entire advertising agency with new computers. Right. You had celebrities. You had longtime Mac heads. Right. Who wanted to come in and, and, you know, and just experience it and talk to folks who loved, you know, who yeah, loved right. Apple. Um, and so it was a really, really interesting experience. You know, many of the the, you know, the people that worked there didn't have a tech background at all. Right. They had a retail background. And so, uh, you know, those of us who did have a tech brown, background ended up uh, doing a lot of teaching, <laughs> uh, a lot of teaching. And eventually I did. uh you know, I moved more over to, you know, work with the folks in business development. So when folks, you know, for, for when people, you know, like the person that I described, like the ad agency head who wanted to outfit, you know, their uh, agency with like 25 new machines and get them networked, you know, I would work with them when the, photo you know, commercial photographer, right, or the filmmaker or uh, uh, would come in and, and, uh, and so I transitioned to do more of like, you know, the consulting business development uh, 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 work. And that was a really, really interesting experience um, to, you know, to basically watch the Apple Store be born. Right. This is before the iPhone. Right. And it was, uh, you know, if it it was just as bad then as it is now in regards to sort of like the throng but in a certain way worse because there are fewer, uh, 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 you know, there were fewer places for people to go to get their sure. things. 
and there was fewer, <laughs> there was much less sort of collective, uh, collective memory or collective knowledge, right, diffused in, you know, in the world about how to fix your problems or how to do things. Right. Right. Um, yeah. So it was, uh, you know, it was an interesting experience, and uh, it made me swear off of uh, ever working in that kind of environment <laughs> ever again. Uh, and I, uh, I eventually, you know, uh, went back to school and, you know, went to community college and, you know, was working, working full time. I went back to I had left Apple uh, and uh, uh, went back to sort of the commercial photo industry and uh, was working there full time and uh, going to school full time until I ended up getting, a, you know, a scholarship towards the end of my undergrad at, a, at the City University of New York um, City College in Harlem. And then I applied to graduate school and moved to Chicago, so where I presently what, am. What were you going to school for at that point? Well, my brother. Um, I mean, what were you studying? To... Not like, why were you going to school? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, well, th- it, both are related. I my brother uh, convinced me to go back because he had this idea that we should become social studies teachers. You know, and teach in, uh, uh, you know, teach in the Bronx and, uh, you know, probably get a, a brownstone together. And, and uh, he lives upstairs. I live downstairs or vice versa. Right. We'll flip sure, for sure. it uh, uh, and uh, teach social studies. Right. Be a get a union job. Right. Uh, you know, and, and where I grew up, uh, you know, that's living the dream. Right. Union job, pension. Right. You get to work with, uh, you know, as an educator, sort of a, I'd always sort of love teaching. And, uh, uh, you know, it was the root of my desire when I went back to become, you know, a school teacher. And so what I was studying, you know, I, I, uh, sociology, political science, all the things that I, that I was, you know, interested in uh, generally. Um, but then when he graduated from community college and went to city college, he had he took a class with a professor who'd asked him if he ever thought about getting a Ph.D., and, uh, you know, I think he laughed and said, ha, like, you know, in a joking way, it's like, oh, it's a Ph.D. Right. And uh, apparently she was serious and she nominated him for a scholarship that prepared, you know, sort of uh, uh, people from underrepresented backgrounds in higher education for, uh, you know, for graduate school, for doctoral study. And uh, he told me about it. And I was like, well, I guess I'll check it out. And uh, and I did. And I applied and I got in and uh and so I ended up majoring in uh, uh, history of the Americas, where I, you know, I did a lot of uh, uh, a lot of work. Um, you know, I did research as an undergraduate, sort of internationally. Right, I spent a significant amount of time in Brazil uh, because I got into an argument with a professor about, uh, <laughs> oddly enough, the roots of affirmative action and whether or not affirmative action was sort of a cultural imperialist American imposition on Brazil. And uh, I disagreed that it was. <laughs> And uh, and she basically said, well, prove it. Put your money where your mouth is. Right. And and I got funding to go to Brazil to <laughs> to do research. And uh, when I first got there, I, you know, I figured since I grew up speaking Spanish, I would uh, be able to just uh, pick it up. No problem. Right. Sort of hubris. Right. right. <laughs> uh, when I got there, it, I, I took a semester of Portuguese. And uh, you remember Charlie Brown, what the adult adults sound like? Yeah. So I got there and all I heard was. <laughs> and uh I, I immediately i was like I, i've made a terrible mistake uh <laughs> i was like i need to get out of here there's no way no way i can do this and you know after a week 
you know, my brain reset and I was uh, I was fine. But what I, I started studying there was uh, was Brazil's black press. You know, I don't know if uh, how much you know your listeners will be familiar with this but brazil in the americas was the the second to last place to abolish slavery in 1888 uh which you know when you think about that right in 1998 it was only 100 years uh since uh slavery had been abolished in brazil um but what i studied was uh brazil's first black political party which is the second black political party in the hemisphere uh, after there's was one in Cuba called the Partido Independiente de Color, which is the the uh, Independent Party of Color, right? People of color, uh, 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 which is a part of the 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 early independence movement. Sure. But in Brazil, um, what I studied was you know in the aftermath of the abolition of uh, of slavery, what happens right um, to this black community, right? The overwhelming majority of people in in, in Brazil are African descended. It's got the lar- the second largest African descended uh, population of Af- uh, people of <clears throat> African descent um, in the world after Nigeria, yeah. Which is uh, which gives you a, an understanding of the extent, right? When folks talk about how slavery, you know, sort of, uh, you know, was so long ago, right? Um, you think about that fact, right? You think about the second largest population of African descended people, right, in any country in the world is in Brazil because of the transatlantic slave trade, right? That's a very, like, you know, sobering fact, right? That, that is. And I had so, no idea. And so, you know, when in that context, right, and I sort of don't want to get in the historical weeds here, but, you know, it's really interesting, you know, given sort of the issues with immigration in the United States to think about, like, another, you know, quote-unquote post-emancipation, right, society, right, another society, right, in the aftermath of, uh, you know, sort of in the Americas in the aftermath of the abolition of slavery, right? Um, What um, the Brazilian state did was they implemented, right, uh, um, a eugenic, you know, immigration policy where they subsidized, right, the immigration of European immigrants to, to literally whiten, the national population. Wow. Right. For the express purposes. And this was a time where the, the interestingly enough, right, this is where, uh, you know, I don't know if you know about, uh, uh, you know, Brazil has a significant, uh, Japanese population. I had right? no idea again. Uh, yeah. <laughs> which, uh, 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 generally, uh, located in Sao Paulo, which is in the South, the South, uh, East of, uh, uh, Brazil. But they, you know, sort of this community was largely, you know, formed in in this period, right after the abolition of slavery, right turn of the the, the uh, end of the nineteenth, uh, early twentieth century, right. And the 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 idea was that the demographic weight of you know of the newly emancipated uh, quote unquote you know uh, black slaves, right, were a a yoke, right around the, 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 you know, around the neck of the nation of Brazil, right, holding it back from progressing into sort of like, you know, the charm circle of modernity. Um, and that what they could do is they could basically breed this yoke out, right? And that led to, you know, when the jobs, right, that these newly emancipated slaves are supposed to be taking sort of in a post-enslaved society, right, are being taken up by people brought there, right, for the express purpose of breeding them out, right, uh, 
the idea of having a black political party is a really, um, you know, is a really fraught one. And so I studied, you know, I went and I studied this, uh, you know, I went to several cities and the archives, uh, uh, Brazilian archives in several cities and, and, uh, um, you know, the, the Brazil was under a military dictatorship for, uh, you know, for decades, you know, until the eighties. Um, and so the, many of the archives are still under seal. And so a lot of the stuff I wanted to look at, unfortunately, uh, was under seal because it was, there were the archives of the secret police, um, who were, you know, spying upon these, uh, 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 black political organizations around the country. Um, and so that was the, you know, the, what I ended up writing about, uh, and thinking about a lot, um, you know, how does slavery, you know, shape and continue to shape sort of the present, right? Uh, what's referred to sort of in my field by a number of people as sort of the afterlife of slavery, right? How does it continue to inhabit, right? Our, our, uh, you know, our contemporary, the conditions of our contemporary lives. Uh, and that's where I started. And that's, uh, you know, sort of the, the nugget that, uh, push me forward into my, uh, you know, my doctoral studies and what I, what I focus on and what I teach about now, you know? Yeah. Well, I feel like we could, we could talk at length now about your dissertation. Yeah. Uh, oddly enough, it does not, my dissertation has not, has pretty much is very different. <laughs> okay. I mean, it takes up the, the, you know, it takes up some of the same themes and questions but I never would have imagined this. Uh, 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 and, and it's odd because, you know, I feel a strange, not a strange, but it's sort of like it's a, a very funny affinity with you uh, in that, um, you know, uh, in that, I, I, you know, and sort of forgive me if I'm wrong or correct me if I'm wrong. For, for folks who do not consider themselves particularly religious, we sure do spend a lot of time speaking to and thinking about religion. Oh, for sure. <laughs> Uh, and like, you know, that's been one of the joys of listening to your podcast over the last, uh, uh, year, year and a half is that you've had, you know, I, I, I don't even know how many, how many priests or sort of rabbis, priests and, rabbis and imams. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, it's been, uh, uh, it's been, you know, one rolling walks into a bar joke has been your, <laughs> your podcast over the last year. But, uh, um, you know, I don't know how much time we have, but, but yeah, my dissertation is actually, about um really ultimately the the uh question that i'm interested in is how does the distinction between religion and politics hold up under scrutiny right particularly when looked at through questions around race and colonialism wow and so you know, that's the dissertation, which is a little different than sort of the previous work. But the previous work, you know, the themes, the general interests are there. Um, you know, we don't have to go into it. You know, I, I deal some with sort of with algorithms and data and uh, and the kinds of uh, the 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 ways that the portrayal of, you know, algorithmics or or and artificial intelligence as sort of contemporary novel, you know, future looking problems um are actually, you know, that narrative doesn't really hold up under scrutiny, right? And uh, is a part of obscuring, right, some of the, the what I call sort of the, the Christian coloniality of the present, right? The ways that, that uh, uh, 
you know, for instance, in the United States, right, that uh, Christianity uh, still sort of, uh, uh, despite the protests of many, right, is the uh, a central foundational element of, of contemporary pol- political life, um, even, right, in the most advanced, quote unquote, democratic nation in the world, and, you know, which upholds the separation, right, that secular separation of church and state. Right. Yeah. No, I've, I've found that topic fascinating lately this uh rewriting of history to to indicate that this country was founded on christianity and that christianity is our national uh religion and uh, like this this it wasn't true until you know like the red scare it's a more recent development yeah yeah, i mean or at the very least it's it's really interesting right so you know, I've got a, a couple of things that sort of I, I often when I'm when in conversation with folks, I bring up to 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 think about, you know, to to illustrate. Right. Some of the the the, you know, <laughs> really sort of the Christianity of the secular. Right. Sort of that that secularism to a certain extent as it's practiced in the United States is really a, a you know, what I refer to as a, a religion of Christianity. Right. And so think about the presidency. Right. Ever been held by a non-Christian? Not that I know of. Although no. I heard, I, I mean, heard somewhere Barack Obama was a Muslim. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No. That's. Uh. Uh. Yeah. So I heard that. Uh. 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 <laughs> that as well, which is 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 fascinating. Uh. Is a is very very fascinating. Right. So, like, you know, what had to happen in, in order, like, uh, in order for a Catholic, even a Catholic, to get elected, right? Somebody had to rob an election. Right. Right. Sort of. Uh, 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 you know, when you think about about Kennedy. Right. Right. And so so, uh, you know, sort of the the birtherism. Right. To a certain extent has a, uh, you know, sort of a theological provenance. Right. Uh, a theological origin or root or foundation, which is not. Not in the last couple of years. Right. When yeah. you think about, for instance, if you use Kennedy as an example. Right the 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 ways in which he was an agent of the pope right that the papacy would be making american foreign policy decisions right that would those were very real arguments right about why <laughs> kennedy was unfit to be president right yeah which echo and many of the 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 you know the islamophobic arguments that were made about a a a Obama that undergirded sort of the 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 you know the quote unquote you know birther birther movement right and I only I'm not I'm not sort of a, uh, equating right sort of uh, uh, anti-Catholic prejudice with sort of uh, anti-Muslim prejudice I'm j- merely uh, uh, illustrating right I can that, see a certain equivalency um, there yeah yeah I mean but or that the very the the very notion right that that um you know that's sort of a Protestant right, is inherently neutral or or inherently rational, whereas a Catholic isn't. Right. Right. That those, you know, those are, are very, uh, uh, you know, those are very religious conceptualizations, right? Neutrality is a very sort of, uh, in this instance, right, uh, a very sort of uh, religious concept, a religious practice, right, a religious capacity, right, and that a Protestant, right, sort of in the, that narrative, right, is actually capable of rational self, you know, sort of like uh, uh, self-possessed uh, 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 decision making, and uh, 
you know, sort of the Catholic is mindless, right? That that's uh, that you know, if you look at the the way that Islamophobia works and sort of the arguments made about Obama, like those are very, very, very similar, um, and sort of run counter to sort of the narrative of of the United States, right? As a secular, you know, <laughs> uh, political formation, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, that's just just one example of uh, uh, you know of of many, you know, how. You know, is the 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 United States is is, uh, is both a secular nation and a Christian nation at the same time. How are those reconcilable, right? The prayer breakfasts that happen, right? That the president <laughs> hosts, right? Yeah. And sort of the long, you know, sort of traditions of uh, that are invoked, right? Often not by name, but always the reference is sort of Christianity, right? Which grounds sort of the democratic, the liberal democratic, right? You know, so. You know, there are a number of scholars working on this kind of stuff. But what I'm interested in is then how how does rationality, how does it become, you know, conceptualized, practiced, right, uh, uh, in ways that sort of obscure, right, its Christian provenance, particularly like in, you know, in forms of policing, in forms of domination. And so you know, I have a small piece that I've been working on on uh, um, on predictive policing and uh, the, you know, the sacred, you know, the sacred nature of uh, data and algorithms. Right. Yeah. Uh, and how they fit onto, you know, they, there's much they have much an affinity with the racial typologies. Right. Of sort of Christian settler colonialism sort of typologies, right, sort of in the, you know, from the, the your, 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 all of your sort of uh, uh, clergy members, right, could sort of like easily understand this. But basically, it's using stories or narratives from holy texts, particularly sort of the Bible, right, to create almost personas or characters, right, uh, uh, that we then use to understand the world, right? And so, right, the figure of evil, the figure of good, the mother, right, sort of like the savior, right? Um and that those, you know, correspondence to one of those types is what allows us, right? It's basically a, a, a guidebook, right? We're looking for those in the world, right, as a means to understand, right, how to live in it uh, and how to uh, respond to it. And so the Christian typologies sort of that indicated, right, to, you know, sort of that the colonial powers who settled, settled the new world, who instituted the, the transatlantic slave trade, right? Those Christian typologies said, right, sub-Saharan Africans are constitutively incompatible with the miracle. They're a type, right? The, their type is the type of, uh, uh, of evil, right? Because they're incompatible with, with the Eucharist, right? With the miracle of life. Yeah. And, uh, you know, much in common with, I don't know if you're, this is around the same, this is part of my dissertation, right? And sort of bear with me. It's sort of like, it, it, it'll, the circle will square, Right. So this is around the same time that this, the, what, what is referred to as the Spanish Inquisition starts, right? And so the, the innovation of, of, the, of what are called blood purity statutes that start in the Iberian Peninsula, right, what becomes Spain and Portugal, right, is that there are decisions made, right, that say that Jews can no longer be converted by the miracle of uh, uh, the Eucharist, right? The Eucharist being, you know, that, that sacrament which embodies, right, the the... the sacrifice of Christ yeah. right, for the sins of man, right? Sort of he uh, converts his uh, uh, body to bread and his blood to wine, right? And the communing with him is sort of uh, uh, taking in sort of the miracle of life, right? And so that previously could convert, right? It can convert anything in the world. It had the power to tr- change 
a Jew or a Muslim into a Christian, into a Catholic. But what happens in these purity of blood statutes is they say this is no longer possible. The Eucharist can only be uh, 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 consumed or, or is only compatible with those who are constitutively compatible with it. So we need to ferret out or root out these people who've been pretending to be transformed. This is sort of where the Inquisition comes from, right? This is where genealogy as a, uh, as a practice or a technology emerges, right? Why you begin to, to map, right, heredity and, you know, uh, uh, the state begins to map heredity, right, uh, uh, and lineage, right, as a means of, of rooting out the quote-unquote, you know, poisons to sort of the, the spiritual and political body. But it's also how it uh, constitutes the sacred geography of sub-Saharan Africa. And so these types, right, you have these types, right, the, that you need not know anything about them because everything you need to know about them has already been told to you. It's divinational, right? It divines the essence, right, of a person, of a place, of a thing, as it truly is, right, based on sort of like, you know, the uh, what's called the eschatology or the, 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 you know, the cycle or arc of sort of the history of deliverance, right? And everything fits into that arc, right? And so what happens is, is that, you know, these typologies are used and supposed to be, you know, uh, tools to, to read the world. But what they really do is they they inscribe the world. They create, you know, el negro, right, or sort of blackness as sort of a, a, a racial population, a racial category. It creates the racial Jew, right? It creates sort of the, the, the you know, racial Muslim, right, as uh, uh, through their constitutive incompatibility with the miracle, and that's how, you know, these, uh, you know, there's really no such thing as Spain, you know, except that, you know, until that which is formed through these technologies, right, through the technology of purity of blood, right, the geneal genealogical technological practices, right, which create these records, right, of who, who is Spanish, right, meaning who is compatible, right, with the miracle and lives here and parents, you know, sort of a... a, a are in this uh, uh, the lineage, but it's also the political technology of slavery, of racial slavery. These people are slaves uh, because that is the will of God, right? They're a constitutive incompatibility with the miracle and illegibility, right? You know, the the, the Jews are legible in, in an in an Abrahamic paradigm, right? The Muslim is legible in an Abrahamic paradigm, right? But you know, uh, uh, blackness, sub-Saharanness, right, doesn't have a link, and so. Um, it is sort of like uh, uh, constituted as completely abject. And so, but the, the thing to focus on, right, is that these technologies that I'm talking about, they create, they're not tools to read the world as it is, right, as they represent themselves as that, but they actually create the populations. They create the, you know, sort of the, the, uh, the figures of enmity, right, and sort of the figures of grace at the same time, right? And so when you think about and so this is, you know, bear with me, this is the relationship, you know, one could look at this as, you know, as an algorithm, you offer it an input, it works as magic, and then it gives you an output. Yeah. And so at, it, at its most stripped down sense, one might be able to think about the political technologies of race as algorithms. Sure. And, and so, you know, and so when we're thinking about algorithms, particularly that, you know, and so let's move to the present, right? Predictive policing, 
the idea of, uh, 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 about why we should move to, to sort of data and algorithms to decide where to assign police, right, whether or not to parole someone, what we should sentence someone, uh, the move to that, whether or not sort of uh, someone is a viable candidate for a drone strike, right? Algorithms are being used for that. The notion is, is that human-based policing is inherently flawed because it's subject to the bias of the human. It's subject to, you know, much in the way that sort of original sin <laughs> is the flaw which makes, uh, you know, sort of the, you know, Christian human in need of the salvation of Christ, right? There would be no need for the intercession, right, if there was not the, the predicate of sin, right? The, we could look at sort of the fallenness or sort of the inability of sort of humans, right? And so we need to move much in the way that that sort of like, you know, a Christian colonial formations move to these typological schemas from the Bible to decide how to treat people and who people were instead of sort of just deciding on their own. The quote unquote neutral or transcendent qualities of data and algorithms, right, in predictive policing are supposed to be what make them better and or capable of uh, uh resolving or solving or, you know, uh, uh, fixing, right, the flawedness, the inherent bias of humans. Um, But as you all know, as I know, as many people who who really studied algorithms, right, they're the furthest thing in the world from from neutral or objective. Uh, Data is, uh, you know, is constituted through decisions that people make. You You bound the set, right? You uh, 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 decide, you know, if you're training an algorithm, right, you decide what to feed it and what the desired outcome is going to be. And in the case of uh, um, predictive policing, the data to train it on is the data generated over decades of, uh, quote unquote, biased policing. Sure. And so what it creates, right, it doesn't find criminals. It actually creates, right? In that deciding to send the police somewhere is predicated upon a decision that the overwhelming likelihood is that we are going to find criminals there. Which is ultimately racial. Which is ultimately, yeah, which ultimately is is one of those things, right? Sort of what I refer to as sort of the incarnational, that data and algorithms, they don't, they're not apperceptive. They don't just perceive the world as it is independently and objectively, right? They actually are a part of instituting it. In that, you know, when you send a cop, right, with a quota into a poor neighborhood, do you think <laughs> he's going to find a criminal? For sure. And so I guess part of what I'm saying is sort of that that the, the supposed neutrality or transcendent nature of data and algorithms, right, is a lot more bound up in sort of the, the uh, you know, in the processes that make, quote unquote, human-based policing flawed in the first place. That much in the same way that uh, we, we can't just let, you know, um, you know, we understand people have biases, police have biases, and that, you know, we understand that, uh, um, crim- you know, cr- uh, criminality can be created by over-policing, by quotas, right, quote-unquote over-policing, right? Yeah. Um, that data and algorithms, right, far from from absolving us, you know, li- absolving us literally from, from that, actually creates like it, like an algorithm creates a typological structure for where it decides to assign, you know, for in this instance, right? Sort of uh, uh, necessarily where it assigns resources 
is where it thinks the font where where the thing that those resources are appropriate to be assigned to are. Yeah. So I'm sorry that was a long winded uh, 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 and perhaps sort of like here or there. But I guess it, it's one example of how, you know, uh, uh, you know, looking at sort of the the Christian colonial foundations, right, of race in the Americas, right, um, might allow us to see how some of those, what I argue, are political technologies are still with us today, right? The afterlife of race and slavery still continues today, even, you know. Uh, though uh, slavery and colonialism are thought to be things of the past, right? Um, that those same kinds of technologies and dynamics, right, are uh, uh, are alive and well today. I would I would say, without getting back into it, that you actually just argued that the political technologies have been around since the uh, <laughs> Adam and Eve. So, well, uh, yeah, I mean, but I mean, that's the interesting thing. Like one of the interesting things is that, um, you know, there emerges right around the same time that a lot of people say, quote unquote, modernity begins. Right. Uh, uh, you know, Renaissance, Enlightenment. Right. Sure. Uh, you know, this is the case only if you take the quote unquote, the West. Right. If you take their narrative from it. Right. Because, you know, there are many different, you know, (laughs) formations of Christianity. You know, this one, you know, sort of like centered and housed in Europe. Right. Which, you know, that formation which emerges under the name of Christianity. Right. In the 13th, 14th, 15th century. They say we are Christianity. We claim the lineage back to sort of like, you know, back to the very beginning. Um but, uh, uh, you know, there are a lot of folks who would uh, would would disagree with that. And, you know, perhaps uh, at, a, at, a, at another day we could have a conversation about that. But uh, I hope I wasn't too long winded. But, uh, um, you know, no, that was that was great and full of disturbing history. Oh, I'm it, so it, sorry. No, no, I, I, I enjoy being disturbed. Um, this episode of Systematic has been brought to you by PDF Pen. PDF Pen is great for organizing documents in the new year. Split and combine PDF documents to send just the right things to your accountant or your lawyer. Fill in PDF forms, whether they're interactive or not. Add page numbers, redact account numbers, perform OCR on scanned documents, find and highlight all instances of a specific term. Step up to PDF Pen Pro to create PDF portfolios, collections of multiple PDFs and related files, great for presenting year-end documents. Learn more about PDF Pen at smilesoftware.com slash podcast. If we want to fit in the top three, we should transition to that now. Oh, yeah. Um, and we didn't even get to talk tech or anything. So, uh, gosh, where is it? Um, so one is Nebo. Spell that. N-E-B-O. I have never heard of it. Oh, wow. Do you, do you, you, I can't remember. Do you have an iPad Pro? No. Oh, man. So I think it works. Uh, do you, you have a, a what? Uh, any iPad? Or no? iPad Air 2. You know, I, it probably works on that too. Uh, um, I'm not certain if it's keyed to the pencil, but um, this is for your, your fancy pants uh, uh, <laughs> iPad Pro uh, users. Uh, it is a, a, a handwriting recognition app, and it has the most the, – the, the fastest – and most accurate recognition engine. Its gestures are intuitive in regards to uh, uh, erasing things and moving things from line to line. Um, 
it is truly wild how uh, accurate and my handwriting is terrible. Uh, um, and uh, yeah, it, it really is amazing. So it's an app, uh, iOS app for the iPad. Uh, um, and I think you can use a regular stylus on it, but I, you know, am someone who struggles with my, uh, uh, my <laughs> workflow. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and I really find the, the, physical act of writing um, to, I don't know, light up a different part of my brain. Sure. Yeah. I've experienced that. Uh, I remember things better if I physically write them versus typing them. Yeah. I mean, that's what a lot of the sort of science is saying these days, just because there, you know, there's a, there might be a, a, you know, there are clearly, you know, uh, neurochemical pathways. There are sort of physiological pathways that are, uh, you know, sort of, Humans use tools, right? It only, you know, sort of manual, manually manipulated tools in a, uh, um, in ways that, you know, when you write, you use, you know, the leverage of your entire body in a way that you don't when you type, right? Yeah. Uh, um, you know, and so, you know, who knows why it just works? Uh, um, but it, uh, it's, it, it's really amazing um, the accuracy with which it uh, 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 it converts your handwriting into in uh, text and the speed and uh, you know there, it's a it's not clunky by any means it, but it has its own sort of um, uh, usability conventions which uh, uh, um, have to do with what it does it, you know it, it it's not gonna gonna replace a notability right sure um, but it does what it does and it does it better than anything in the game so any awesome. all right so my first pick is going to be uh food lab uh i've been a huge fan of like uh otto ottolenghi's cookbooks for a little while now oh yeah we have one of those uh and then i discovered food lab which is a uh a cookbook a cookbook and uh kind of all around uh cooking techniques book by a guy whose parents were, I think, a chemist and a biologist. Um, I'm not remembering exactly, but uh, he basically grew up in a science house. And the book is very much based on uh, kind of cooking for geeks mentality. Uh, why things work, why certain ratios work, why, why different types of heat are required for different types of food. And it's been fascinating, and the recipes are great. Um, yeah, so that's that's my recommendation if you're into that kind of thing. Awesome. Yeah, I definitely got to check that out. Um, so my number two is not for the faint of heart. Um, and I went back and forth on thinking about whether or not to recommend it. Um, but I do think if, if you can... Uh, it's very profane, um, but politically it's very, very sharp. It's one of the sharpest things uh, in, in regards to um, sort of a daily-ish uh, show uh, that reports on politics and culture uh, on TV right now. Uh, they also have a podcast. They're uh, called Desus and Marrow, D-E-S-U-S and Marrow. They have a TV show on Viceland. Uh, um and uh, they're just two dudes from the Bronx, <laughs> uh, you know, sort of. They happen to be Caribbean, both uh, Afro-Caribbeans. Uh, one's uh, a Dominican, the other Jamaican. Um, 
but they uh, they have a very interesting backstory. Uh, uh, they met on Twitter, or they, no, they knew each other in high school, and then sort of like both were on Twitter and you know stuck at dead end jobs, and ended up parlaying a uh, 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 podcast into a TV show on Vice, and now they're up, up and away. But they are, you know, they are two people on a journey. You know, they went from being pretty uh, backwards, fairly backwards thinking, sort of like, you know, heteronormative dudes to, to getting, quote unquote, woke. Um, and they, <laughs> they make fun of themselves at, at uh, and offer very, very funny and incisive sort of political commentary and uh, commentary on pop culture that, uh, uh, in my opinion, is not to be missed. If you are offended by uh, 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 graphic uh language and or reference to sort of uh 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 sex uh do not check <laughs> it out <laughs> um but uh if you can deal with that it is uh hilarious and they also uh put clips on uh, uh on youtube as well uh it sounds like something i will i will take a shot at yeah 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 yeah, yeah. i'm not easily offended we'll okay, see okay. okay i'll let you know okay please all right so my second pick is still in the kitchen um i just got well, actually, uh, someone else got, and I've been using, uh, an instant pot. And uh, we got the Ultra 6-Quart 10-in-1. It, <laughs> uh, Patrick Roan mentioned the instant pot on an episode of Systematic back at the end of 2016. And uh, I took note of it, but hadn't really looked into it because I was thinking basically it's just a pressure cooker and I have lots of other things to do. Um, this thing's kind of amazing. It's like a pressure cooker with extra functions, uh, a bunch of buttons and a dial and you can program sequences and you can use it as a slow cooker or a pressure cooker or a rice cooker, a yogurt maker. <laughs> uh, you can saute and steam and sterilize with it. Um, it's been, well, and I can make things that would normally take all day to replicate using like a slow cooker or any yeah. stovetop technique. I can do in under an hour, sometimes like 20 minutes, just throw everything in and turn on the pressure cooker. I'm kind of amazed with it. It's been, <laughs> it's been a lot of fun. I've not fully experimented with everything it's capable of yet, but, um, I, I would recommend it to anyone who is uh, either into cooking or into cooking fast. Yeah. Um, so my number three is uh, 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 tech-related. Uh, I used to have really, really bad uh, RSI, and I got... Um, uh, I can't remember what it was called. So I think it was called nursemaid's wrist, or it's basically a really, really misogynistic term for what would happen, uh, like a kind of RSI problem that new moms or sort of people nursing would have, um, because of the position that you hold the child in for, for long periods of time. Sure. Okay. Um, and so I'd had RSI for a while and then, uh, uh, I had, uh, uh, um, kids about two years ago and, uh, I had twins and, uh, um, uh, we basically had to live in shifts. Uh, uh, and, uh, and on my shift, I would, uh, you know, sort of like feed them every couple of hours, but because I had two of them, I'd often be stuck in positions, either trying to get them back to sleep where I, I got this even worse sort of RSI and I couldn't get rid of it. And I finally bought a, an, a mouse, uh, an ergonomic mouse. 
um, from Anchor. I don't know if anybody, I'm sure Pete, there you had to have had people recommend it in the past. Maybe this is sort of a, a, a double up. But it is an, uh, a vertical, it's called a vertical ergonomic optical mouse. Yeah. And it feels really weird, uh, um, but it's incredibly comfortable. Um, yeah, I've seen these. Yeah, you almost feel like it, it's a kind of video game control. Um, it didn't take me very long at all to get used to it. And I, I've used several different kinds. I, I even bought a... Uh, uh, um, a uh on ebay a uh it's called what was it called a roller mouse oh like uh, a trackball no no it's called a roller mouse it's very strange it look it basically sits right in front uh you know if you had it in front of your laptop it would be very uh, right in front of it and it has a uh a, a, a cylinder right on a uh um uh, you you have to see it it's really hard to explain but it, you basically roll this long cylinder back and forth with your fingertips, and you can move it left and right. Um, they're really expensive, but I got one on an auction website for pretty cheap, and I used it. And it was no—it really was not better at all than my twenty-dollar, often on sale for ten-dollar Anchor uh, um, uh, wireless vertical ergonomic optical mouse. All right, uh, and it's got—you know—if you want. Uh, uh, if you can, you know, you can uh, uh, use USB Commander to reprogram the buttons. It's got like five buttons, um, and it uh, it cleared up my RSI right away. And I bought it for my wife, who spends a lot of time uh, on the computer. She's a civil rights attorney, and so she, uh, uh, you know, uh, her RSI has gotten better uh, as well. But it, uh, um, yeah, it, it, it's really amazing, and I love it a lot. And I feel very sad when I have to use other mice. So my takeaway from that is that USB Commander still works. Oh yeah, it's a... <laughs> I had no idea. <laughs> yeah, it's a godsend. Nice. Um, yeah, I uh, my RSI, I I when I switched to trackpads from mice, like it got a lot better. But I found basically I just had to kind of switch input devices, like use something with a different motion every now and then. Um, what really helped me was yoga and the yeah. wrist stretch sequences that are in yoga, mm-hmm. uh, in forest yoga. Um, yeah. actually I'm going to help my yoga instructor create a video of like wrist stretches for nerds, uh, specifically geared toward keyboard based, uh, uh, RSI. Oh, wow. Um, that's great. I'll yeah. let you know when that's out. Cause I, I think it would help anyone with RSI. Like, yeah, I think it's, it's amazing. Yeah. It's, uh, I think people are, you know, I've been doing jujitsu for like five years. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, have sort of learned my body in ways that I'd never thought possible. Um, and one of the, the, I think so many people live with pain and they think it's just normal, right? Uh, um, that it's, uh, uh, it's really shocking because I lived with a lot of pain. Um, you know, I've been in a couple of car accidents and my body's all beat up. Um, but, you know, sort of doing jujitsu uh, really opened up my eyes to, to how much, you know, you can pretty easily, you know, not, you know, it's not easy. You know, it's not sort of as easy as sort of uh, uh, popping some ibuprofen, clearly. But, uh, um, you know, that you can relieve a lot of your physical pain with, uh, uh, you know, with yoga, with sort of stretching, with uh, myofascial release, yeah. with, uh, uh, you know, lacrosse ball. 
Yeah. Roll, roll, you know, putting and, your feet and on the it. And the double lacrosse ball. Yeah. 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 I oftentimes sort of uh, won't use it for a while and then I'll use it pretty hard and then my feet will end up pretty bruised. Oh, for uh, sure. <laughs> it's really <laughs> easy to do. Oh, man. Yeah. Uh, All right. Well, my last pick is the Cozero mini tabletop tripod. It's a, an iPhone tripod for photography. And I've had a bunch. I like like the Gorilla Pods and stuff, but this one is it's just fantastic, and it works really well as both a handheld kind of extension to the phone and a tabletop tripod. Um, it fits any phone. Uh, it's got like a um, kind of um, what's what am um, Neat Studios, the glyph. It's kind of got a oh, yeah. glyph type, like it, it pops open and then you just squeeze it down to the width of the phone nice. and screw it, screw it into place. And uh, yeah, the the one I got also came with a counterweight uh, that you can use instead of the tripod. So it's the, the tripod mount instead of going onto the tripod itself goes onto this weighted grip. And you can use that for really stable without being like an actual steady cam. Yeah, just yeah, yeah. really stable video. Um, yeah, so it's about 30 bucks, I think. And it's absolutely my top recommendation if you want a tripod for your phone. That sounds great. Yeah, I think that, uh, uh, um, yeah, uh, it's the kind of thing that uh, most people think might be too. Uh, it's like, ah, what do I need a tripod for my phone? And then you either let them use yours or you force them to use it. And they're like, oh, my God. Right. You know, because that's that's one of the things with these tiny sensors and lenses, right? They're amazing and kind of, you know, uh, uh, there's a phrase sort of, I don't know who said it, sort of a uh, uh, um, uh, technology that is sort of su- submission, su- sufficiently, right, advanced from the level of sort of a particular society is indistinguishable from magic. Right. Right. Uh, That these, uh, um, uh, you know, these sensors are magic. But one of the problem is because, you know, you can't you can't there's no free lunch when it comes to physics. Right. Like one of the things is that they do not deal well with movement. Right. But if you get them steady, the images that you can get, like I still have a success. Right. I am continuously blown away. Right. In the right conditions just how amazing the quality and the color off of that sensor is. I just, it, you know, and uh, 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 having a tripod just makes it just amazing. I will say that for video, I have been absolutely astounded by the automatic uh, jitter and stabilization that the video can do. Like, which which do you have? The, I, what you have? the 10. Oh, uh, yeah. Well... <laughs> I I just got it. The the seven plus was my last phone, and it it did okay. But on this, like, I'll be shooting video and be very aware that I'm jostling or uh, shaking or in any way unsteady, and then I'll go back and watch it right away, yeah. and it'll be smooth. I yeah, it's amazing. I, my my success is probably one of the last ones, unless the seven S as well. Um, that has uh, I I know the success plus had um uh. Uh, regular or like in lens uh, uh, stabilization, yeah. right? Um, optical stabilization, not the digital stabilization, which is you know much 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 better. Um, <clears throat> so you know, unfortunately, my kids keep growing. I can't, I cannot convince them to stop growing or eating. Uh, <laughs> um, and I haven't been able to upgrade yet. Uh, but uh, uh, you know, maybe when they go to college, I'll get a. a, a, a <laughs> 
But you're if, right. For still photos, though, you you just can't beat a tripod. A tripod, uh, especially if you have a remote. Um, any any of those remotes that basically just trigger the volume up on the phone, so you don't yeah. actually have to touch it to take the photo. Yeah. Yeah. It's a um, yeah. That's a that's a neat little trick. Uh, you know, I don't know if everybody knows that the the um, many headphones, right? Uh, if they are, you know, if they're compatible, uh, iOS right. compatible, right? Uh, if they're plugged in, you know, just like as if you were using the volume up button on the uh, the um, on the phone, right? You can use it as a as a camera trigger. You can use that, um, you know, that headphone jack as well. And it's a uh, uh, it's also great for for time lapses uh, as well, right? If you you don't want to like you know uh, press the button on the the phone or you you know you don't want to hit set the timer up for a, for a time lapse. It's a, a, a really great little trick. Yeah, that's awesome. All right. So I know that you can be found at jaredrodriguez.com, J-A-R-E-D, and um, Jared Rod on Twitter. Is there anywhere else you want to mention? You know, I'm, I'm trying to get into, you know, I'm, I am a huge supporter of sort of the idea, the concept, and sort of the, the, the project at a uh, micro dot blog. So maybe I'll use this as a, uh, uh, as a way to force myself to get to, to get some more material <laughs> up there. I'm not really a tweeter, uh, because of sort of the way that unfortunately Twitter has led to the, uh, very, very difficult professional situations for a number of my academic colleagues, uh, who are very left wing. So I try to stay away from the Twitters, but Micro.blog seems like a wonderful place, and I've been a little uh, uh, <laughs> um, microwing. I don't know what, uh, what what I could say I've been doing there, uh, but I, I'm going to get more on there. And sort of my username there is Jared, J-A-R-E-D. Got in early. All right. That'll be in the show notes Jared. as well. Jared.micro.blog. Yeah. All right. Um, and I'm Brett Terpstra. You can find Systematic on Twitter at Systemcast with no E. Uh, you can find me at TT Scoff, and you can find my blog at brettterpshire.com. If you'd like to join the Systematic community and chat with guests and other listeners, you can go to signup.systemcast.net and uh, and join the Slack room there. And uh, that that's a wrap. Thanks, Jared. Thank you. Uh, it's been fun, and thanks everyone for listening. We'll talk to you in a week.